0: Hey everybody, I hope you and your loved ones are safe, happy and healthy. Before you listen to or watch the show, remember to subscribe and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn to stay up to date with all the latest news and updates from My Legal Club. If you, your family or your business need any legal support or no obligations, solicitor quotes, please get in touch with us at mylegalclub.co.uk. Before you listen to the show, please note the content is for information purposes only and is not to be relied upon. Stay well, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the MLC show. I am your host, Sean Rogers, and I am delighted to be joined on today's show by Michael McNally, a leading employment lawyer and director at Panoni Corporate LLP. We have lots to debate and discuss across employment law and HR, and I'm really excited about the show. I've seen the questions of course so uh, it's a good thing that I am excited by the show. Michael how are you?
1: I'm good thanks Sean yourself?
0: I'm good thanks yeah really busy and uh, we're recording this on a Friday afternoon so looking forward to the weekend. Um, (laughs) Before we get stuck into the show what's been the biggest challenge during the pandemic in respect of supporting your clients Michael?
1: First of all it was just the basics of are the businesses are law firms going to survive and how do you handle remote work? And <clears throat> I think they became like, the you know, the first few weeks, they were a real big concern. Then obviously we had the furlough scheme. That was a bit like, I suppose that was a bit like trying to build the plane whilst you were flying it. We were literally advising on things that weren't even laws yet. But then over more recent months, it's getting back to normal. And um, in terms of economic activity, we're doing a lot of non, non-pandemic non related work, which is I think is good for all of us. It means the economy is starting to, to move again. So I was looking into
0: um, what's been going on in America recently and CNN hit the headlines in August after firing three employees who went into work uh, unvaccinated against COVID-19 in what uh, was called a violation of company policy. Now, a whole range of U.S. household names, Walmart, Google, Uber, Facebook, have demanded that some or even all of their staff are immunized before entering the workplace. Now, a couple of things. Could employers in the UK implement similar mandatory vaccination policies? And then obviously the question would be whether they'd be legally enforceable, because it appears that, to me anyway, that many firms, and I can understand why, are somewhat ducking the arguments and have decided not to get involved in what many will consider to be employees' personal choice. Other companies have delayed making changes to the workplace policy, given that many office-based workers have yet to return full-time to the desks. If employers wish to make this company policy, a few questions, you know, that have been raised on this generally in the market is, you know, does that result in the vaccination status being sensitive information? Would it be a reasonable request from the employer? What business needs would make it reasonable? Could employers find themselves, you know, with unfair dismissal accusations or discrimination? Some employees may not even be able to have the vaccine. They might be younger, may not have had the opportunity. It might stop people returning to work or feeling like it's unfair treatment. You know, what are your views?
1: Um, well, first of all, and you will have heard, there's been a certain companies that talk of no, no jab, no job, um, and it makes it sound like it's really easy. It's not. Trust me, I've I've advised clients around this, and it's it's a complicated issue. So, companies in the care sector, it will from the 11th of November. Anyone who doesn't provide proof of vaccination status or that they're exempt for clinical reasons won't be able to enter the care home. So in that sector, from that date, employees could well find their jobs at risk if the employer hasn't got anywhere else to, to move them. The government are consulting on uh, the health and social care sector. So that's likely, I would have thought, to be something similar. There's no suggestion that they're going to do it generally across the workplace. What I think they will do in September, I think they're planning to require proof of vaccine if you're entering nightclubs and certain other venues. So I suspect gradually the vice will close on. If people are just holding out on the vaccine, it will become harder and harder to go about your life if you haven't got the vaccine. In terms of ordinary employers, so you take like some my law firm, a call centre, a factory, whatever it may be. First of all, if you're thinking of implementing a policy, it's not mandatory at the moment, so it's entirely up to you as the employer. So you're going to have to have a really good reason. I was doing a lot of work in the care sector before the the, the regulations came in that make it mandatory. And even the care sector struggled to come up with good, solid reasons. But they had good reasons in the sense that the residents are vulnerable and family members are pushing for people to get vaccinated because it can then impact on them commercially. So they've got really good reasons. If you're the likes of a, an office-based business, it is gonna be really hard for you to show that you've got a good reason for trying to effectively force employees to get a, a vaccine or to reveal that confidential personal data about themselves. Um, doesn't mean it's not possible, but it's difficult, first of all, to I think to get a good reason if you're just an ordinary private sector business. And then if you wanna go about this, there's lots of issues around. Um, it could potentially be discriminatory, if you implement the policy and people don't follow it, you're then going to be in a position where you might have to dismiss. Can you do that fairly? What impact will that have on your workforce planning? If you're a workforce of 100 people and 50 don't get the vaccine and you've said it's a, a no jab, no-job policy, you're then going to be in a position at some point where you've got to dismiss 50% of your workforce. Um, so that that's going to cause, cause difficulties. So for ordinary businesses, it is possible to create... Um, a mandatory policy, but it's going to be very difficult for it then not to fall foul of of some practical or legal issue. Um, and personally, my view would be you better sticking with um, the COVID secure, so PPE, social distancing, appropriate um, working practices, and to trying to take a approach like that. And then when it comes to the vaccine, educate the workforce certainly. Um, put a lot. There's a lot of information out there that employers can share with their employees about the benefits of getting the vaccine, and that will, in time, lead to a greater and greater uptake, and it's better for all of us. Um, you mentioned about the just some of the, the the types of problems you can face with the the policy. You mentioned about data protection. Um, obviously, it's going to be um, special category personal data, which means you've got to have a legitimate interest in gathering that data. But then even when you gather that data, there can be complications around. If you've got a policy that says, so if you've got a document that says, have you got the vaccine, yes or no? That's one thing. But then if you ask the question, why not? And that's in a free text box. There's data protection risks there because it gives the employee to reveal, the opportunity to reveal information that you don't need, but now you've got. So it's a minefield from data protection. Certainly not my area of expertise, but from a data protection point of view as well. ICO, have got lots of information on it. Certainly I've got colleagues at um, Pannoni who, who know a lot uh, about data protection. Um, the other one you mentioned about, um, so people who don't want to get the vaccine and they say then there could be issues around, well, I, I, if I feel discriminated against because of my age or whatever the case may be. That has been one of the biggest issues we've had before the mandatory vaccine came in the care sector is trying to work out what the legitimate reason was behind all of this, but then looking at individual categories. So what happens if somebody's an anti-vaxxer? Will their belief be protected? What happens if, as it was a few months ago, younger employees won't have had the vaccine? Obviously, by the end of September, they expect most um, will have had the opportunity to have it. That was throwing up all sorts of discrimination issues. What about religious? Because we find that maybe certain cultural and religious groups, were, were the, the uptake of the vaccine was lower there. So that's just a, a, a flavour of the difficulties around a mandatory vaccine policy and even the difficulties that sectors that could could structure good reasons for having it had. So certainly if your law firms call census factories, for me, it's a case of probably don't get into that if you, um, unless you really need to. And certainly take advice if you are going down that route
0: yeah so in essence in a way by being covid secure
1: mm.
0: ppe promotes the benefits of the vaccine and the reality is likelihood is that like you said due to government uh, rules maybe even changes because general life may well mean that people may even if they don't want it, may feel like they've got to have the vaccine potentially because otherwise it may prevent entry or provoke other restrictions with whatever it could be. Mm. Actually, that sort of does the job for the employer anyway, to a degree.
1: Yeah, for most it will.
0: In respect of if if there was a potential split in the workforce, because to a certain extent social media reflects life, doesn't yeah. it mm. um like social media gets a lot of criticism but i would argue well that stuff's just out there anyway it's just that this yeah. is bringing it to what used to go on in the pub i suppose or in homes yeah. is now out there potentially for everyone yeah. to see isn't it? Mm. It, it if there was a split in the workforce is that advice still the same that in essence the company put down a policy which in essence is ppe education to a degree promotion covert secure that kind of thing and then if there's a if there's a dispute within the workforce, for want of a better phrase, on like the factory floor, in that there's some vaccines, some not, yeah, and there's then complaints from your employees about that, is it just a case of reverting to the company policy and saying, well, this is our company policy, your dispute is really outside the ground for that, as long as PPE is being followed, COVID secure and the other regs, or... Mm. You know, and and trying to communicate with people about that and manage that is that is that where we're at in terms of managing that? Do you think if there was a dispute within the workforce, or is there a better way of doing that?
1: I think that that's a, it's a good point around the dispute because at the moment we're all thinking about is the government going to make it mandatory? How do employers deal with it? I don't think we've really got to that stage where within workforces you have got half of them saying um, we don't want the vaccine and therefore we're going against. Um, what you're encouraging us to do and then you've got the other half saying well we're not willing to work with those people if they're not vaccinated so I think that will then become an issue and that's the importance of having a good robust policy because if you can explain what you're doing and if you have got measures because I think the biggest issue is likely to come from people who are vaccinated concerned about those who aren't and if you've got good measures in place to, to keep people safe you've explained what you've done and why you've done it in a policy doesn't mean you can ignore those concerns. You've, as with any complaint from an employee, you've got to look into them and investigate them and all of that. But if you've got a good robust policy there, you're gonna give yourself a better opportunity of trying to overcome that problem. Because the worst thing could happen is that you've got half the workforce against the rest and that impacts upon productivity. You've got a unionized environment. You may even have industrial action. You lose work, the workforce. You have people not coming in. Um, they're all difficulties employers will have to face, but having good policies in place, engaging with the employees, that should hopefully minimize those risks and help you overcome them.
0: And we're recording this before the first September phase out of furlough. Hmm. The Office for Budget Responsibility expect that while the total gross outlay on the furlough scheme peaked at just over 10 billion in May 2020, it was still at 2.2 billion in June. 2021, when the latest figures were revealed. The Institute for Fiscal Studies report that they expect to see rise in redundancies. I've spoken to many people, accountants, and a number of other professionals that also expect to see a steep rise in redundancies post-September 2021. So, two questions. Firstly, how should employers considering redundancies approach this and what are the most important steps they need to follow? And then secondly, what would be your advice generally for employees faced with voluntary or compulsory redundancy? And, you know, are there alternatives that the employer could consider?
1: So I think for me, the the first tip obviously followed for process, selection process and that, but I always tell clients that if you're thinking about redundancy, take some time to sit down and prepare your business case. So for the, what are the operational commercial reasons why you're considering doing this. Because if, in my experience, if someone can go to a tribunal and explain those reasons well, tribunals will let them away, um, will, will accept a lot of what they say if they come across as having a credible business case. So I always tell clients at the start of a redundancy, sit down, come up with the business case and then implement that, that procedure to make sure it's fair. Well, having a good business case means you can explain it to the employees. Um, it's more likely to be structured better and if you end up in tribunal, you're going to have a stronger um, defence. And in terms of alternatives, a lot of this was actually looked at last year when, because when before furlough came in, or when it was going to be phased out, I think it was last July. Obviously, a lot of employers were looking at this then. Um, so a lot of these conversations will have been had about short time working, um, pay reductions, layoff. Um, change in terms and conditions. I think a lot of employers have at least thought about that or spoken about it. They are all alternatives to redundancy. And certainly from an, an employer's point of view, should they should consider them. And from an employee's point of view, in terms of challenging a redundancy, one of the things you do is make sure you're putting forward suggestions about, okay, this is what you want to do, but have your thoughts about this different way of doing it. And the more you put forward, the more likely for, from an employer's point of view, it will be fair. And from an employee's point of view, you may end up getting an outcome that, that, is, that you're happy with.
0: And what alternative, like could an employee, if an employee receives notice of, an let's say an intended redundancy or mm-hmm. even, get the hint that that's where this may be going say are there alternatives that they can potentially like can they take the bull by the horns and what would your recommendation be if they if they wanted to do that and make suggestions
1: well no they should so definitely if you're an employee you will if it's done properly get that opportunity um but the the if you know that they're coming there's no harm in speaking to your employer your manager making it clear that you've got to think there's alternatives there you look at it a different way sometimes when they get the hint of redundancy some people have been waiting for this opportunity so there's from as an alternative to you quite often if you accept any voluntary redundancies that are on the table you may well get a better deal so that's something you've been looking for it's a case of getting in there early because that opportunity might go if you've been There's there's lots of people out there who've been waiting for voluntary redundancy for years. (laughs) So when it comes, make sure you get in there early if you want the best deal.
0: Yeah, no, I I think part of that will play into um, a boom in equity release for me. Mm. In that, I suspect whether it, I I suspect there may be over fifty fives that do what you're suggesting that they may have one eye on it but I imagine they'd be speaking to an IFA or whomever it may be, um, may well be the the company about what's in the, you know, occupational pension scheme or private pension or whatever to try and sort of gauge where their position would be in the future. Mm. Um, And I imagine, sadly, because of the way pensions have gone and stuff, I just imagine that for many, it might be that they can't make the finances quite work on it. And therefore Mm. I wouldn't be surprised if IFA's then look at, Equity release, which is now much highly um regulated, if you will, mm. and I think a much cleaner product than perhaps what it might have had the reputation of being, yeah. rightly or wrongly back in the day. Um and then also you might have others who are facing redundancy or have been furloughed, and actually the employers are like, okay, well, we didn't have work for you, but we still haven't got work for you, or actually mm. we've you know, the situation's changed in terms of dynamics and the needs of the business. And as a result, kids may be out of work or kids mm. may be made redundant. And then the bank mum and dad or the bank of whoever may mean that equity release comes in. So mm. I, I suspect later on this year, especially with Christmas and stuff like that coming, um, I wouldn't be surprised if you see a boom in equity release, I think partly as a a result of some of that. Um, I was reading on HR news that the latest research collated by instance officers shows 9 out of 10 workers say they want more flexibility in where and when they do the job. And more than half of them are willing to leave if they don't get it. Another survey uh, by UI revealed 54% of workers, now this is worldwide, not UK-based, but they would consider leaving their current job I mean, it says after the pandemic, you know, there's an argument of on how you define after, but they would leave their current job if their employees, if their employers don't offer more flexibility. Mm. Now, as lockdown measures obviously begin to ease, more businesses may require that their working from home employees return to the office for at least part of the working week. Only one in 10 employers apparently are expecting their employees to revert to sort of pre-pandemic working arrangements with a full return to the office, uh, mainly in the services sector. And it looks like the government uh, are, are making a real push to try and drive people back to the office. How should employers approach flexibility at work generally? And specifically, I'd love to hear your views on the contractual challenges and how to vary them. Uh, long-term discrimination risks, potential redundancy issues, expenses, allowances, people working from home, and obviously. And then re- things like supervision, training, line management, people working from home. I'm sure you've had to face some of these challenges in the past year, Michael, as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. The, I'd say the first thing for employers is when it comes to flexible work and working from home, whatever it might be going forward, is don't jump to conclusions. We all... just human nature is that we tend to act and think later and it's a big problem of in employment law that employers will sometimes act and then think about the issue later so like with where i said on redundancy it's a good idea to get your business case in order on flexible work and actually sit back and think okay if we don't want to agree to it what are the reasons for this how are we going to justify those reasons don't just think i want everyone back in so it can't be done We've just gone through or we're going through this massive 16-month worldwide experiment in agile working. So before then, employers could say, well, we're not sure if it's going to work or not. We now know it does work. There's evidence that productivity is up and um, people are much happier. Businesses are doing really well. So it's important to actually think really hard about whether you want to object to, to employer requests or not. Think really hard about what's right for your, your business and don't just think, I want everyone in because that's the way it's always been done. Because there's loads of benefits for employers. You've got, obviously, they can reduce property costs. They can grow without increasing property costs. I say there's evidence that staff are more productive because they haven't got all them interruptions. They haven't got the, the daily commute. There's businesses who are taking advantage of this by recruiting from a wider pool of recruits. So if you're a Manchester or Liverpool-based business, historically you look for people within an hour of those areas. Now you could be based in Liverpool but recruit from Bristol. And so the pool of talent is a lot bigger. The pool of customers, if you've now got someone working in Bristol or London, you might have access to customers that you'd never heard of before. So I think a mind shift from employers thinking, I just want to see people because if I can't see them, um, they're not working, they, they can't be trusted. That is still in, it's just part of human nature. It's still there. Uh, take a step back, actually think, what what do I want? What do I want it for? And what does it achieve? Um, because the thing is, employees are going to push for it. If you don't agree to some element of flexibility, you'll lose people or you just won't get the new talent in. Um, and employees can always make formal statutory firm for flexible working requests anyway. So that's an option if the employer holds out. So for me, it's think carefully about what you want and why you want it and try and implement something that works for both sides, employer, employee. Try and involve the employees in in the process. Don't just have a top-down. You're going to be in four days a week no matter what. Actually try and engage the employees and get something that works for everyone. Um, There are potential legal issues, and what what I've um, been saying to clients is because we've been in a bit of a crisis mode the last 16 16 months – there's things that probably aren't fit for purpose, but we've just made do. As we start coming back to a, a new normal, client um, employers should start looking at contracts, policies, things like, is your IT security actually fit for purpose? You might have muddled through for 16 months, but if this is going to go on forever, is it actually going to be effective and secure for your um, data? When it comes to things like, um, expense policies, we've now got a whole host of expenses that employees will start thinking, actually, I could claim for this. And employers have never really thought about such as household costs. So those things that have just never been thought about by employer or employee, they need to be built into it. So when you actually get the time, and I think a lot of employees are now finding things slowing down pandemic wise so they can take that time. It's a good idea to review and ask in a, in a new agile working environment are our systems and policies fit for purpose? And if they're not, start looking to improve them and and adapt them.
0: Yeah, I think it might get quite interesting with London because if you think about it, especially, you know, you and I are a similar age. I think, Michael, I hope I'm not doing you a disservice there. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, in the past it was kind of like, well, you can go to London and get the big salary, Mm. even potentially doing the same role. But yep. then you've got to figure out whether you, where you want to be and what the impact on that cost of living is. Mm. And we all know various roles, which within reason are far greater salaries in London because of an increased cost of living. But like you just referenced, there's then an interest in play because if I've got a business in London, I might think, well, actually I can now recruit people from elsewhere who maybe aren't expecting such yep. a big salary. Then also, people in them areas are going. Well, yeah, in this area, I might be thirty-six grand in London. I get sixty. Therefore, I'm worth forty-two, forty-four to you, just by virtue of yeah. your company postcode, in essence. Yeah. And actually, employees make more than they are currently by going into a local workforce as opposed to London, and London are then reducing wage bills. B- because of that reason as well yeah, hypothetically definitely. and then the long term play like you said is people on 5-10 year leases or whatever maybe they've done well actually especially in London this is a lot of money mm. Do we really need to be here? Exactly. and if we do we can then start reducing the size of this somewhat substantially so as you say everyone's been in sort of a crisis mode they'll be interested and it's going to take years I think yeah, to see I'm what people do Um coming out of this on, on the subject of working from home uh, the department for digital culture media and Sport has published new guidance on what employers can do to address loneliness uh, among their workers if not already this should be considered within any employee wellness plan but what else can and should employers do in respect of employees working from home and that the loneliness and loss of social interaction that that can particularly create
1: I think the starting points are simple, but it's a lot harder in practice is good communication. Um, And that's going to become more of an issue, I think, when you've got, at the moment, certainly office-based businesses, most people are probably still at home. As you get a significant number going back to work, you will get some people who are more isolated because maybe they're the the person who only goes in once a month as opposed to everyone else is in several times a week. So communication is the first key is be all the good things you've built into your working practices over the last 16 months, try and take forward so you're not leaving the people out who are at home. So that's an important thing, so they're not isolated. I think we probably need to think about, and businesses have done this anyway. At one time, corporate hospitality involved people going out and getting drunk, but now they've realised that actually there's different age groups, different genders, different needs to what corporate hospitality looks like. So we've seen changes over that. Going forward, what socialising in the workplace looks like. That's going to have to change. People have, have been doing things over Zoom and that since the, the pandemic. All of those things are going to become more of a norm to involve them. But you've also got more formal things, such as employee assistance programs are um, useful. Um, mental health first aiders. So if you know someone's having difficulty, the mental health first they can um, step in. I had a client the other day. I, I seen a letter from a client where they know someone was struggling with an issue and they said, we've got the employee assistance program, but also, did you know that Joe Blogs is your mental health first aid? Why don't you have a chat um, to them? And there's also an element of education of the employees because, again, it's this crisis mode thing. We've all been making to over 16 months, but actually we need to start developing. We've been in work so long with the practices in the office. Some of us need to be educated about how to work remotely. And that can be things like, you now encouraged not to work beyond a certain time at night not to be sending emails late at night, both for your sake and the person who's receiving it's sake. And that's an education piece that I don't think, I think a lot of us are struggled with over the, the pandemic. And we're still trying to work our way through because maybe for 15, 20, 30, 40 years, we've been working from an office doing things in a certain way. And that education piece would make it better for us. Maybe avoid loneliness, mental health issues, and us feeling that, that, that it's all becoming a little overwhelming
0: yeah 100% just on, on that on that subject i i added to all my emails yeah you know yep. if i'm emailing you out of office hours i do not expect you to read reply etc because of my work life balance and and everything mm-hmm. involved it means that i do sometimes have to or may need to or might want to mm-hmm. work outside of office hours but i completely you know it's not as lengthy as this by the way but in essence <laughs> I'm trying to say, <laughs> i you know i respect um your views but i also think there's an education part for people in receipt of that because my argument is that's very polite to do that but there's no need for me really or anyone to have your email notifications either on or go to your emails out of office hours Mm -hmm. unless you have to the the reality is if you do that's the education piece isn't it Yeah, in a way in terms of i think if people want to email you out-of-office hours, especially where are external to your, internal in your business is completely different matter. That can be communicated. Look, for me, that doesn't quite work. But then you're looking at technology as well. Because you know yourself, it's difficult to go, well, I'll leave that. I mean, I'm lucky that we have the technology to be able to trigger send stuff. Mm. So quite often when I work out of hours, I don't send the emails out of hours. I We just delay it to 9am yeah. the next day mm. or whatever. But for many who are on Outlook or whatever, they, we don't have that, ability so i think there's an element of people externally are going to do it don't look mm. if it's nine o'clock at night and you're gonna you've just done bedtime story for the kids yeah
1: unless it's urgent and you you'd yeah like the education
0: is you need to be with love but be more disciplined don't look yeah because mm. it's the worst it's like you know what i mean the worst thing you can do if you wake up in the morning you plan on doing meditation or you're whim hoffing or you go in the gym or whatever it is you want to do The worst thing you can do is go into emails or WhatsApps. Because you're playing roulette, aren't you? There's a chance there's going to be something in there that needs your attention or might worry you or whatever it might be. And then it's going to potentially be a distraction to what your morning routine is, what you're going to be doing, copy the school run, whatever. Mm. The reality is it can wait. So I think there's also, like you say, a communication point of view from the owners of the business where, I'd like to think people saying, listen, I don't expect you to be doing that. Yeah. Don't do it. Mm. I'd even be like you said on data, do you need it on your phones? Now you're working from home. Mm. Yeah, I'd argue no. So if you're at your laptop working, then for me, of course, emails can come in. Mm. Emails can come in. If you're not on your laptop, you don't know. Yeah. No. Don't lock in.
1: But don't I think. The I think as a result of all of this, I've um, said to a few people, I think this emphasis on hard work. If someone calls you a hard worker, it's a compliment. And we like to see everyone working harder. But I think we're going to move more to smart work. So actually the days of just seeing people slog away for hours on end, what we want to see now is people working smarter. So same outcomes, but people need to be a bit clever in how they work. And we start seeing that as a compliment. That is something to achieve where I can hit my targets, but I can still go home at five o'clock rather than having to sit at my desk till 10. And I think we're going to see that change in emphasis over the coming years.
0: Yeah. And especially, I mean, you and I had sort of grown up in the same industry, haven't we? In essence, in terms of, you know, going through the training. And there certainly was, um, you know, an expectation, I guess, of, you know, trying to put a big workload on people, and that it was, you know, there was a big I, the amount of people I know at partner level, and I'm probably guilty of this from many years ago myself, by the way, of being like, oh, they're a nine to fiver. Yep, everyone does that. I don't think they are. Um, And that's quite a typical phrase. Whereas I think in the last four or five years, I've completely changed mine. Not view. just I just think some of them habits from other people get ingrained in you and you end up sort of spouting them and don't actually question them and think about them properly. Mm. And certainly for myself, I'm much more interested. I'm not that interested in what you how long it is. I'm much more interested in auditing your time.
1: Mm. So
0: particularly if you're working from home, like I'd rather, you know, if, if you could do seven hours at a pace, but there could be someone who's doing 12 hours, supposedly, but every... 30 35 minutes they're going to make a brew mm. and then they're checking that the TV's recording that night and then they're checking the whatsapp up, do you know what i mean mm. and it could be that it looks like they're doing 12 hours and actually they're not by yeah. the time you add everything up mm. in it i'm much more interested in the auditing of it and like you say having that ability to work smarter and then you get into well, what can we make better from a technology point of view? What mm. can we make better? Especially, especially in service businesses, I think the big one is being able to communicate with your clients much better. And for mm. me, understand what a client update is. Because I think that is a big thing, especially in the legal profession. I don't think anywhere near enough people have understood what a client update is. Because mm. we were all do you know what i mean i we were all trained that a client's update is i'm gonna it's basically i've got something to tell you
1: Mm.
0: and that's not what a proper client update is a proper client update really should be this is what's happening this is what's about to happen if anything goes wrong i will tell you but this is where this is what's going to happen and if it hasn't happened by then i will get in touch with you Mm. and no one gets that nervous fear if you see what i mean yeah. And something you see heavily in conveyancing, I think, as well, is that is that hearing nothing can provoke paranoia when there's nothing to be worried about.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: And, it, and in this day and age, when Amazon can text you, I'm not saying confidential data or anything, but when Amazon can text you to tell you that there's a, pa- a package is on its way tomorrow, there's no reason why there can't be more sensible, c- cute, creative ways yeah, of really understanding sick. what each client wants, like some clients might want, a brief sms update with no confidential data in there other people might want to email and i think you can be quite creative i think in, especially in service in client services because i think a lot of people are losing when you were saying about working smart a lot of people who work in the services industry financial services legal services uh, you know their time is quite often taken up by their existing client base phoning in or communicating with them so if you can do that in a smarter way which increases customer service levels the amount of time you could free up per person mm. is, is incredible I think everyone auditing departments time and stuff is crucial On in July the government issued an updated response to the consultation on sexual harassment in the workplace mm. uh, for those who don't know they received 4,215 responses and of those respondents 54% said they had experienced harassment at work 36% said they had not, 11% left it blank. The government have stated that as soon as parliamentary time allows, the government intends to introduce a specific duty requiring employers to prevent sexual harassment in order to encourage employers to take proactive steps to make the workplace safer for everyone. Explicit protections relating to third-party harassment. And there's an extension of time in relation to bringing a claim under the Equality Act 2010 from three months to six months. Um, What's your best practice advice for employers to prevent this and respond to allegations more robustly? And from an employment law and practice point of view, what would your advice be for someone suffering from sexual harassment at work?
1: I think we've mentioned a few times education for both. So from an employer's point of view, it's having effective training in place. Um, not only a training course uh, when someone starts and never look at it again, it's got to be regular training. Now, that might be learning. Obviously, now we can do Zoom and Teams, but good training in place. That doesn't only look at this is what you're not expected to do, but it should probably go further nowadays and look at things like um, we've seen unconscious bias about behaviours in the workplace, about being able to identify when issues can arise, when it may not be obvious. Um, So that's a really important piece that sits alongside the right policies so uh, equal opportunities policy it might be a code of conduct again though it's not enough just to have it you need to be keeping it under review improving it when issues arise actually using it Um, those are are two key things for me because what they will do if you're getting them right and then regularly the um, drumming them into people then eventually the, the right culture will develop because a lot of a lot of discrimination generally and certainly sexual harassment it's not what you'd think of you think of the obvious ones so for sexual harassment you think inappropriate sexual behavior um but actually a lot of it isn't that explicit a lot of it is um maybe there's a a mainly male workforce and they do things not really realizing that some of the female colleagues might feel left out a bit isolated because of it and that conduct can turn into um harassment so educating managers, the workforce about that, making sure they have the relevant information that will impact on culture, which will in time impact on, on behaviors. And then again, from the employee's point of view, you're having problems. If you're in the right environment, you will know what to do and you'd be educated yourself. But from an employee's point of view, first thing, there's lots of resource out there, ACAST, Google, um, trade unions, CABs where you can go and first of all, understand your rights. But then ultimately for something to happen, if you want things to change, you will have to raise it with your employer. Um, And for me, I would say a lot of the time, it's not going to be as bad as maybe you think it's going to be if I raise it. Because again, people have this perception. If I raise it, all that's going to happen is maybe the, the person I'm accusing is going to have an issue with me or my employer won't take it seriously. The number of times I've seen an issue raised and the alleged harasser, is really apologetic because quite often they didn't appreciate. Maybe they thought it was a bit of a joke and banter going on and someone else has understood it differently. Maybe it's just they don't realise, so that idea of going off and doing their own thing, not realising and isolating colleagues. So the the amount of times the alleged harasser is really wanting to to make amends. And most employers, again, and the businesses that don't necessarily have good reputations in in terms of they might be um, rough and ready businesses, Pretty much most clients I deal with, once it comes across the desk, they want to deal with it, they want to deal with it properly, and they want to make sure it doesn't happen again. So it does. it is important that if you want something to happen as an employee, it's difficult, but you will have to um, raise it with your employer. Great
0: advice and brilliant and loads of value there, Michael. Um, thank you so much for your time and thank you for being such a fantastic guest and and thank you for listening or watching everyone you can find out more information about how to contact michael um follow him on on social media in the links to the show please share and spread the word about the NLC show if you're listening on apple podcasts i'll be cheeky as always and ask you to hit us with that five star review and remember to check out the products and services at mylegalclub.co.uk but more importantly please stay well and take care